I want to pick back up all in. We're all in with all in. And I want to pick back up with John. I want to re-engage the marvelous account, glean from it. Some of you have already noticed, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can, you can follow along. Bible app, you can do that as well. But if not, you've got the scripture passage in your handout as well. This is from Luke 7. I want to just reconnect where we've been, reset the table. Don't want to assume that all of us either were here or have a working knowledge of what we're talking about. Uh, John the Baptist, here's the scene, we're setting it. John the Baptist has been imprisoned by King Herod and is being held in a cell on a, on a hilltop palace fortress called Macarus. And uh, Macarus, uh, you can still see uh, the ruins of Macarus today. We've got, a, again, just a reminder shot for you. This is on the east side of, of the, the, the Dead Sea, right? So if you were, you know, it's the Jordan Valley, but if you were to see the Macarus, it's just the ruins today, but it gives you a sense of the span of what, uh, where that, that was. You know, it's just the scope, the, the way that it was extended out the views, how desolate it was around John in that palace as well. So we're talking about a real place, and this is where John was. And some scholars uh, believe that by the time we read what we're about to read here in Luke 7, that John had been imprisoned up there for about a year. Some of you may recall that John had been taken by Herod because Herod had been provoked by his wife Herodias, who actually had wanted John killed. Herod, who was superstitious and actually also uh, seemed to really genuinely like John, he at least in some strange way was affected by him and believed that he was a holy man from God, a prophet. He didn't want to kill him. So he instead decided to try to get a, in his mind a win-win and he imprisoned him um, at Macarus. And so John is confined. And that was the picture. And one of the things that we know is that the situation appears to have been a little bit dismal. And uh, it's clear that he seemed, John seemed to be slipping into a, a mild depression. Uh, the, we can only imagine, uh, and I want us to try to use our imagination with our mind's eye, that John would be up there in this, this palace up there, which again, you can only see the ruins of. And maybe he's in some dank cell or possibly just a, a, a dimly lit one. It's hot. It's stale. The air is stale. Um, it's, again, poorly lit. And for a man like John, who had been accustomed to the wilderness and to open air and, and big skies and, and to be able to move, he was a man of vigor and of, of uh, physicality. So for him to be locked up like a bird in a cage with only the ability to maybe look out a small window and was, was stifling. And for this to happen for months was just, it, it would have just been really very hard. It was, on, on top of that, uh, he had a double blow because he was cut off, he was trapped, he was sequestered. Uh, you picture him forgotten and miserable so it was just, the bottom line is, it was really hard, very hard. For, it would be hard for anyone, but it was really hard for John to be locked up in a cage, right? And um, he had not only lost his identity, remember that? Where he was like, well, what am I supposed to do now? But now on top of that, he had lost his free freedom. 
And we should not underestimate the power of loss to rock our world, right, to affect us. Some of us maybe have experienced some loss already in life. But when, you, when we experience loss, certain types of loss, uh, it, it's a very powerful thing. And uh, we don't always handle it well. Sometimes it can send us into a deep pit. Even loss sometimes that we, we sense was coming, and when it happens, it may not be totally unexpected. It can still be very difficult to work through. When we get a series of losses, it can actually be devastating to us. So I want to see us to see John confined in a way that was so difficult for him. He's lost his sense of purpose. He's lost his sense of identity. And part of him is even struggling with his sense of confidence in who Jesus is. Because although he was uh, confined, we know that he was allowed regular visits by his disciples, right? And they would give him updates concerning Jesus. And some, and this is where I want us to go here, some of what he was hearing was actually concerning to him and different than either the way that he would have uh, done things or actually had imagined that Messiah, the one that he thought he was preparing the way for, would, 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 would have done them. And so it was very unsettling for him to hear of some of the reports he was getting. So again, bring it all together. He's lost his freedom. Uh, he, he, he doesn't have a sense of his purpose. He's now months into this. It doesn't seem like anything's changing. He's being kind of used as a, a, a pet prophet by Herod who visits him regularly. You know, it, there's just everything. And then now he's not sure about Jesus. He, things aren't making sense to him. And, and then part of him starts to, and this is the thing that catches our attention, because John, as great as he was, we're told here, begins to have second thoughts and starts to wonder if maybe he got it wrong when he had identified Jesus as the Messiah. Um, wonders if he was indeed the promised one that he had declared him to be. And I could see him thinking, could he have been premature? Um, now a year or so removed from the baptism moment, he began to question what he had experienced when he heard that voice that he thought was so clearly connecting Jesus to the role of Messiah. You know, maybe I misunderstood it. Maybe it wasn't what I thought it was. Was it exactly what it meant? I'm not sure now. I'm not sure. So John, had, you know, because Jesus had in some ways, um, and I need to say this with humility, but Jesus had in some ways disappointed John. No one had been sent to help him. Not even, it appears, to check in on him. No communication. Nothing. And again, almost a year had passed. Jesus, as far as we can tell, had nothing to say, at least not anything that we can see recorded about John's unjust imprisonment by a decadent king. Right? It, is he saying anything about it? There was, seems like nothing. And again, it was almost as if he had been forgotten. And I'm just going to tell you that this may not make as much sense to those who are younger, but I think it does make sense to those who, certainly those who are moving towards advancing years. Uh, it's not easy to be forgotten. It's not easy. It's not easy for anyone 
But um, life has a way of doing that to us. And that can be a hard as well, hard pill to swallow. Okay, stay with me. Meanwhile, so that's John, a bit depressed, confined, and questioning. Jesus, meanwhile, his popularity is skyrocketing. As word of his miracles and uh, his teaching spreads his fame abroad into the region, the latest news, for example, was that Jesus had reportedly, and it was un- unverifiable, but it appeared to be true. That was the reports John was given, that he had raised a girl from even from the dead. What's more, uh, Jesus was not an ascetic. He was less concerned about the ceremonial law, right? And his disciples at times seemed to almost flout convention. And he engaged people that John would have immediately called to repentance. In fact, Jesus was said to eat and drink with them. He befriended them. And it's true, Jesus did not do it to a point of decadence or immorality, but he did freely mix with people that John would have never associated with himself with and would have immediately called to a point of repentance. It seemed as if Jesus called, this is an important distinction, Jesus called them to repentance from the inside, whereas John called them to repentance from the outside. And there's a very different, that's a very different approach. Jesus had done so from the inside, He relationally interconnected himself. He engaged people who um, John would probably have not engaged and would have simply proclaimed the truth of God's opportunity to and called to a place of repentance. John was an outsider. That's how he viewed himself and his appointment from God. He lived in the wilderness. His was the tradition of the Old Testament prophet. That's why a lot of people said, oh, he's like Elijah, right? John was an outsider speaking into culture. Jesus came into the culture, immersed himself into it, and then began to proclaim the kingdom has come within it. And he was moving in ways that, that for John, were inconceivable. Like it was hard to understand. And, that's, and you start piling those things on, and you realize that's why he's kind of having his own version of a, of a crisis of, of faith, at least to the extent that he feels insecure about the conclusion he has drawn that Jesus was the one. Now, months have passed, and John needs reinforcement. He's buckling a little bit. And that sets the table for the passage. And it's a marvelous passage. We only covered a piece of it last week out of Luke 7. I love this passage. It has so much in it. It's got, well, let's look at it together. Here we go, all right? Verse 18. And again, John, discouraged in that dark place, begins to wonder if he had gotten it right. The disciples, verse 18 of John, reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, if you really pause to think about what we are being told here, it's it's incredible. John sends a committee to ascertain if Jesus was indeed the one that he thought he was, that he thought him to be. And when the men had come to him, verse 20, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? 
And in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he, he actually bestowed sight. It was seen that Jesus let them wait. That they came like a delegation. Perhaps they first inquired with Jesus' disciples. Maybe they talked to Peter. Maybe they talked to Andrew or Nathaniel, Philip. We don't know. They said, hey, we would, John, we've been sent by John to talk to uh, your teacher. We've been, we've been sent by John to ask Jesus some questions. And when that was brought, mentioned to Jesus, Jesus evidently did not respond immediately. Send them in or, yeah, sure, we'll talk. Jesus kept right on doing what he was doing. He was in the, me- in the middle of teaching and healing. It was quite a, a moment that is being presented here. It's, it's, it's filled with implications. Evidently, um, one of the things that they would have immediately noticed, right, because they had approached and interrupted, but he didn't respond. And so Jesus just continued on with his ministry time. And as they waited, and can imagine them waiting with the large groups of people scattered around, would have been, this, this to me looks like a, a hospital with a lot of people watching and Jesus interspersing teaching and healing. John's disciples would have immediately recognized that this is something they had never seen John do. John is recorded as healing no one. There was not part of his ministry. There were no signs, no wonders, no healing touch. John was a prophet. He proclaimed the kingdom. His method was the declaration, and it was a forceful one, of the reality of God, calling them to a place of openness to the new thing that God was about to do. John's disciples would have been amazed, again, because John was a prophet and a proclaimer, not a healer, then, after some time had passed, and the crowds evidently started to, at least in modest, modest ways, disperse, Jesus turns and has this to say. Verse 22. And he answered them, this is what I want you to do. Go and tell John what you have seen and what you've heard. Tell him the blind receive their sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, The deaf hear, yes, and the dead are raised. The poor, let let him know. The poor, the outsiders, they have the good news also proclaimed and preached to them. In other words, Jesus was saying, the actions speak for themselves. All that has been anticipated is happening. And tell John what you have seen me do. Oh, and one last thing. Tell him this. And this is a word for the ages. One more thing. Besides telling him everything that you've seen, tell him this. Blessed are the unoffended of me. Blessed are the unoffended of me. In other words, blessed is the one who embraces me, who accepts me for who I am. Listen, who does not stumble over me who trusts in me. It was, if we, and, we, and we, maybe we can say it this way, it was a tender rebuke for John. Blessed are the unoffended of me. Blessed are those who embrace me, trust in me, and who, and who do not stumble or question what I am doing. And they left. So they, le- they leave. Okay, we'll take that back to John. And they go. And we think, oh, that's where it ends. 
but it doesn't. Jesus waits for them to leave. It's interesting. He doesn't say it while they're there. He waits for them to leave. And then he turns to the crowd and makes a statement about John. Look at this. It says that when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And then Jesus says this remarkable statement about John, perhaps sensing that some people, some people caught what, what had happened and what Jesus had said. And if, and if any of, perhaps even Jesus is thinking that even maybe his disciples might underestimate his feelings and opinions of John, because it did seem like a bit of a rebuke, and it, and it, and it seemed like John needed his faith reinforced. And so Jesus makes this statement, by the way, what did, you, what did you go out to see? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you, concerning John. Let me talk to you about John. When you went out the wilderness to see him, all of you, did you, think you, did you see a reed shaken with the wind? What is a reed shaken with the wind? You see it sometimes in a field. Just kind of blows depending on the breeze. It goes this way or that way. Like a lot of politicians today. <laughs> That's all I'll say. This is political as I'll ever get here. All right. He says, do you go out to see, when you went to the wilderness, did you go out to see what? A reed shaken by the wind? What, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? <laughs> Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live and live in luxury, they're in the king's courts. Now I ask you, what did you go out to see? A prophet? I tell you, he was more than a prophet. Oh, it was a stirring appraisal, wasn't it? And, and one, at least when you read it and you think about what's happening here, one can wish that, wow, why didn't, wouldn't it have been wonderful if Jesus had said that in front of John's disciples? Like, that couldn't he have said that? But Jesus, I don't know why, but he waits for them to go, and then he tells the people, what did you want to know about John? When you went out to see him in the wilderness, did you think you were seeing someone that was anything but amazing? That's what he's basically saying. This man, he was no reed blowing in the wind. Don't you, don't you underestimate the quality of John just because of what you heard just happened here. He was no reed blowing in the wind. He was no man with an easy life. He was not a soft, soft man in that way. He... He was a prophet of God. And it's fascinating because not only would John's disciples never hear these words, but John would never hear these words, these words that we're now reading and talking about that have echoed down history, down the centuries, and I think will echo into eternity. John never heard those words from the master's lips. Then Jesus, quoting the Older Testament, says, This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then Jesus makes the statement, and I tell you this, among those born of women, none, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, there are two remarkable statements just made right there. Do you see them? One is, Concerning John's greatness. It's as if Jesus was saying, do not doubt this man. 
Do not doubt this man. He is as great as any man born of a woman who has ever walked the earth. Do not doubt this man. Wow. But then Jesus adds this. The most insignificant person in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That was not meant to be a diminishment of John, but an exaltation of the new thing that God was doing. He was basically saying is that relationship with Jesus is the supreme opportunity of life. That true greatness is embracing him. That's what Jesus was saying. It was, and think about that. Now think about the juxtaposition. That was the very thing that John was struggling to do in this moment. The greatest, in, the least in the kingdom, the least who embraces me is even greater because that was the message John anticipated that has now come present. And even John must submit to it. It is a shift, a new movement of the things that God is doing. Okay, stick with me. Jesus is just getting going, all right? He says, when all the people heard this, Look at verse 29. And the tax collectors too, who were notoriously corrupt people, right? They were licensed by Rome, essentially to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And then they extorted. Took it off the top. Rome closed their eye. They got wealthy. One of the disciples knew how it worked because he was a tax collector, at least he used to be, and that was Matthew. And so... Tax collectors, though, Jesus, interestingly enough, even though they were despised, he actually engaged them. It says, and the tax collectors, too, and they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. It was the first time anybody had reached out to them. Um, John did it. And it says here, that, but the Pharisees and the lawyers, the lawyers were another, they were the scribes. They were the, they were the experts in the law, the law being the law of Moses, the scriptures, right? But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. In other words, what we're told here is that in that group, there were tax collectors and Pharisees and, and leaders and scribes and lawyers, as well as common people all gathered around. And the, the tax collectors actually had submitted to the baptism of John. They had humbled themselves and, and said, we will repent unto the kingdom. And remember, John told them, don't take more than, than is just. And he told the Romans, don't be violent with people. Do what is just. I mean, it was a very consistent message, right? And, and it's interesting because look what it says here. It says, Jesus' affirming explanation is met, right? Um, when Jesus says, this is who John is, none greater, right? Then, then there, that explanation is met by an affirmation by those who had believed John and his message and submitted to his baptism in anticipation of Messiah. The Pharisees and the scribes, though, they were less enthusiastic about what Jesus was saying because they had not chosen to submit to John's baptism because they believed they were above it. And Jesus then, he could tell, and I think he looked at them and he said this, and whenever Jesus does this, you know something's coming. He says, let me tell you a story. Now, whenever Jesus tells you a story, something's coming, all right? He says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? Look at verse 31. And what are they like? Jesus just opens up. He's almost like he says this, what am I going to compare? I think he's talking specifically right here to the Pharisees and the lawyers. What shall I compare this generation to? What am I going to compare you to? 
He could see their faces sour on John. They weren't even believing him either. He says, you know, what are they like? They're like, verse 32, the children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Oh, Jesus says, you know how the children play in the marketplace? You know how they, they constantly argue with one another about which game to play? How sometimes they, they spend more time arguing than they do playing. Have you ever seen those kids who won't play if it's not their idea, if it's not their game? One of them says, let's play funeral. They say, no. The other one says, well, then let's play a wedding. No. They're childish. They won't play unless they get their way. It's my ball, right? Has to be their way. Jesus then says, for John the Baptist, listen to me, has come to you eating and drinking. He, he's come eating no bread and drinking no wine. You know what you said of him? John came. He didn't drink. To any, and he didn't eat like people do. And you know what you said of him? You said he has a demon. That's what you said. His, 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 John's ministry was like a funeral. That's why Jesus used it. He didn't drink. He was austere. He was fiercely serious. He was utterly focused. He was ablaze with zeal. He was a man on fire with the passion of God. And you know what you said about him? You, you said he had a demon. Basically, you know what you called him? You called him a crazy man. And you know you did. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, engaged. And you say, look at him. I know what you say. I've heard it. You say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. I came in contrast to John's funeral like a wedding. Joyful, life embracing, happy, but you don't want me either. You call me a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of notorious sinners, the worst people. The first two, I am not. The last one, you do not mean as a compliment. I know. Nothing works for you guys. You're like the offended, stubborn children in the marketplace who won't play because it wasn't their idea. But I tell you, I tell you, you are making a mistake. And I tell you that wisdom, look at the phrase, is justified of her children. That is, wisdom is revealed when we submit to it. And right now, your lack of receptivity around me indicts you as lacking it, reveals you and your stubborn religious pride. That was the exchange that takes place, and it's intense. Now, let's move off of that. Let's reel this in. Let's, let's apply it. Let me suggest a couple of things about all-in and all-in kind of faith, and then we sit with this and see where it takes us in the, in the Lord's, in our own heart. One of the things about all-in faith, look at this, you guys, especially for those of us who are jotting things down. All-in faith invites us to bring our doubts to Jesus. John was in the dungeon, defeated and wavering, wasn't he? Look at that. Worn down, his mind is clouded with doubt, right? Let's go back to John, that's where we started. He's not sure of things. But in that place of kind of wavering, he did the one thing, 
we must do. He brought his doubts to Jesus. He brought his doubts to Jesus. I love that. May the Lord help us here when we are in our dark place, and we will from time to time, our struggling place. We're wondering, wondering, did I get it right? I know I had this experience, but did I? I, See, this can happen. I've seen, I have seen this happen with my own eyes. I've watched people radically affected by the reality of the Lord. And then as time goes on, begin to question the reality of what occurred inside their own hearts. And that begins to get, take a foothold and and it starts to cloud. And it can happen to any of us, right? All of us can have that happen to us. And all I'm going to say is that when, the main thing is, is not that we're not going to have times of periodic darkness in our lives or times where we have some even doubts about the reality of what God is doing in our life or maybe even like John was having of his goodness and who Jesus really was. But the beautiful example that John gives us is he moves towards Jesus in his doubt, not away from him. And if we will do that, you're going to make it. And, and we're going to grow. It's okay to have patches of questions. That's normal. They're gonna, we're not always going to be always on our game, our faith game. There are going to be times where we waver. It's all right. I don't think we want to practice that as a whole because God loves faith. And I don't think he wants us to question his love for us. But I'm just saying, I know how life is. There are going to be patches where we're going, to be, we're going to be really maybe finding ourselves in a place of confinement. And I notice that a lot of times it's in that confining place where we, where we begin to weaken, right? We feel hindered, like we're in a cell, like I have no move to make. I can't get out of this. Where are you, God? Why aren't you showing up for me? Second thing I want to suggest is that all in faith invites us to be open to his tender corrections and his happy invitations. John was struggling. Jesus reminded him. What did he say to him? Blessed are the unoffended, right? There are going to be times when the Lord will remind us, same way, you need to accept and trust to submit. John, submit to what you cannot fully understand. And we talked about that last week. You know, I kept thinking about the word blessed. It means essentially happy. If you look at it, one of its meanings is a state of well-being and contentment. Jesus used that word all the time. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. Translated, happy are they. And I kept thinking about how Jesus said this. Blessed are the unoffended of me. Happy are the unoffended of me. And how in that moment, John was anything but happy. If anything, he was, listen, leaning into pessimism. Some have even called it a dangerous place. And yet, the Lord loved him and wanted him to know things were on course. But it was not an easy word. It required faith and it required trust. And there are times when we will waver in our questions with the Lord. And he's going to challenge us to walk by faith and to see, as Jesus was trying to get John to see, John... I know you're being confined and squeezed. When that happens, you know what happens to us a lot of times? Our world shrinks. We become myopic. And what Jesus was saying is, I need you to see things in their totality. All is as it should be. Do not allow yourself to be shaken. Stick with me. It is all as it should be. 
And you know, John, one more thing. He had a little bit misunderstood Jesus. And I think that we, we may under, I think that may have hurt Jesus as well. I mean, to have John questioning him, just like I think we're capable of hurting the Lord. The Lord has been so good. And then there are times when, we, when things go wrong, so easy. I'm not saying we do this all the time, but I've done it a few times. Just start to waver in my loyalty. Some of us may question God's goodness. He can't give us any more than he's given. And this life is it's not the end of the story. It's just the prelude, you guys. We're all leaving someday. It's just a matter of when. How are we supposed to be while we're here between now and then, between the first and the last day on the tombstone? How are we supposed to live? That's what Jesus talked about. Two things. One, about because of me, this is not the end. That was one thing Jesus said, right? That's what Easter is going to be about. No, death is not the end. It's just the, the end of the first phase in the beginning of life yet to be because of Christ. But it's also something that shoots backwards into our life and reminds us how we are to live in this life. And it's the last piece I want to suggest because I love the way Jesus worked with John, right? All faith, all in faith invites us to leave stubbornness and offense in exchange for his joy. I'm talking about the way we're supposed to get to live. Uh, one of my favorite portions of, psalm, of a psalm is Psalm 16. Psalm 16:11, where it says that in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. You know, may the Lord keep us from a childishness that only wants to play when it's in charge. Jesus said, nothing moves you. Every, every appeal isn't good enough. And I know the Lord can handle our weakness. I know that. I know he can handle our weakness and he can handle our honest doubts. But well, there is one thing he will not do, deal with. Stubborn pride. Because God, the scripture says, resists the proud. Doesn't matter how intelligent we are or powerful we are. If we are proud before God, he resists us. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Remember, not childishness, childlikeness. Not childishness, childlikeness. Not being self-centered and act, but being open-hearted, right? Bring our cares to him like a child with trust safely does. And here's the thing, last one, last one of the last one. <laughs> May he fill us with his joy. And remember that life with him, listen, life with him is supposed to be like a wedding, full of joy. It's full of joy. Someone said to me, how could you say Jesus was a happy man? Because he walked around all the time saying, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And they didn't say, how can he give us blessing? Look at him. They never said that. All he did was bring healing in life. He says, my ministry is like a wedding. It wasn't life denying. It was, it was life affirming. He was saying, life with me is a joyful thing. Yes, even in the dark place, it can be 
a joyful thing, and we must choose to position ourselves this way. No room for offense, no room for negativity dominating us. I know things can be, where's the pathway out of that? How do we get out of those places? How do we stay free in confinement? The joy of the Lord, right? The joy of the Lord. Let's choose the pathway of joy. All right. Ah, following Jesus is like a wedding. It's full of life, goodness. Oh, Lord, I thank you uh, for your way. I know, I know what your way costs us something. And I know that your way uh, at times has sacrifice in it. I mean, you went through that. John was going to suffer himself. He did. But your way is the way of life. And I ask that you would just fill us with your joy and fill us with your life, Lord. And don't let us stay contained and defined by circumstances, but give us by the power of your resurrected spirit, the power of the resurrected Jesus who lives inside of all those who will welcome him in with sincerity and openness. That same power that allowed Jesus to rise from the dead would, would surge and pulse within our spiritual veins as well. And that we would allow the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Not just words really, really help us, Lord, to stay creative, unoffended. Let's seek to be a blesser. Let's, let's break out of smallness and stay big, God. Let's, let's follow the example of Jesus and stay light on our feet. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I pray for that blessing, Lord. Break every yoke of bondage. Break any stronghold of the evil one. Break any pattern of thinking, Lord, that would, would define us, whether it comes from our past or the experiences we've had that would seek to call us back into dark places, um, places in which we find ourselves imprisoned again. No, your way is a way of life. You said you have come to give us life and to give that life overflowing and abundant. And I pray that we will live in that promise and we will rejoice in it in the days and weeks ahead, the joy of the Lord is our strength. May our joy be full. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God. 